Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. This week, I am on a solo mission from the crew, but I have two wonderful guests with me today. There is Holly. Hi. And Jonathan. Hey, everyone. And we are going to be talking about Star Trek merchandise slash collectibles. So I couldn't have two more perfect people here with me today to talk about this topic. Very quickly first, I do want to remind you that our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get some awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries. And you can join us by visiting patreon.com slash womenatwarp. You can also support the show by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that out of the way, we always like to have our guests introduce themselves a little bit, give us some of your history with Star Trek, anything you'd like to share. And we'll start with Holly. Hi, my name is Holly Amos. I worked for licensing for Star Trek for the brand at CBS for five years between 2012 and 2017. I then went on to be a executive producer on an officially licensed game. And I now actually work consulting with Roddenberry on their archives. So that's my experience with the Star Trek brand. I've been a fan my whole life, and I've worked for the brand in one capacity or another for about seven years now. Fantastic. And Jonathan, you've joined us a few times before. Yeah. But why don't you remind everybody about yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, <clears throat> once again, my name is Jonathan Alexandrados, and uh, apologies for my voice today. I'm getting over a cold, uh, so that is why you're also getting a little Eddie Vedder in all this. Basically, I am here because I have been on the other side of Holly's work for my entire life. I've been buying the merch. Uh, I've been collecting it. I have a collection uh, numbers certainly into the thousands of, of Star Trek merchant, and that even makes me a small fry in the world of Star Trek collectors, because we all know how extreme it can be. I'm here uh, also because I've written a lot of scholarship, uh, academic scholarship, on the importance of collecting and uh, specifically toys and action figures. I edited the first academic collection of essays on action figures. It's called Articulating the Action Figure, and it's out now from uh, McFarland. So I'm here for all of that. <laughs> oh, and pronouns are they, them. Uh, I should just always like to say that. Awesome. Good to know. Cool. So this topic, this is a very long topic. I think this is the most notes I've ever written going <laughs> into an episode, clocking in at six pages for anyone who cares. <laughs> this was suggested to us by one of our patrons. Uh, Jason wrote in, how much Star Trek merch do you have or want, given the licensing appears to be on the rise with a new series? How much is too much? A bat left over the fireplace? Of course, we're going to use this as a jumping off point, going all through the merchandise. But are there any of uh, Jason's questions that you would like to answer before we get started? They're very easy questions. I mean, the answer is all of it. How much Star Trek do I, I, I – all of it. <laughs> Holly, you could probably be more specific than I I mean, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing is having been on the side of actually licensing it, it I, there's so much of it. And, you know, I mean, there's always been a whole bunch of merchandise, even when the franchise was sort of in a lull, there was a lot of merchandise. And I genuinely feel like there are collectors like you that want everything. But I feel like for me, it was always I kind of picked my battles. I know that there's a lot of people that are 
foaming at the mouth over like the Christmas ornaments. And I mean, that's good to mention because we're, we're getting into the Christmas season and that's what they choose to be really passionate about. So I feel like in terms of kind of not going crazy and not running myself into debt that I would probably <laughs> choose a couple of things like the Funko Pops or something that I would be really excited at, to uh, collect. So yeah, that's that's how I would say do it. There's a couple of things that I collect that are specific to Star Trek, but I don't collect everything. I just don't have the space or the money for it. Well, and what Holly says is true. I mean, I did, after all, buy the smallest storage unit that they had. So therefore, this is <laughs> finite. So so her call uh, is, is should be heeded. But I think that to me, to refine my answer a little bit more, Star Trek merch for me personally, has always been at its most charming when it has been at its least expected. So for example, you go into the 7-Eleven and you see the cup and there's Star Trek on the cup and you're like, oh my God, I just wanted a Slurpee, but now I have this Star Trek thing. And it's so cool. There are plenty of collectors who are like, no, no, I want to drop the $500 to get the pendant or whatever. That's great. But I, I much, I much prefer the days where Star Trek just hits me kind of out of nowhere. So the, the Happy Meal toys, the mail away offers, those charming little things that I think have somewhat maybe sort of gotten lost a little bit now because, because they were kind of perhaps kitschy, but I love them. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that I will like hit buy it now on eBay faster than, you know, quick draw McGraw. So that's, that's, that's me. Yeah. Me personally. As a kid, I wanted everything. Mm -hmm. I did not know how much everything was. <laughs> yeah. Like cost-wise or volume-wise. And I mean, over the course of it's not just what was then, like what was out then, it's what was, has been out in the past. I mean, we're at over mm -hmm. 50 years at this point. And if you start now and you're like, I want everything, literally impossible. Like you're not going to be able yeah. to find yeah. everything. <laughs> but at, at some point, I, I started paring down my, my collectibles and toys and tchotchkes. There's still a lot of them, but I feel like, you know, being a New Yorker, knowing spaces at a premium sort of helps me on that. And I, I try and limit myself to, to things I really love or characters I really love. Things that spark joy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would say my, my favorite piece actually over in the last couple of years anyway was the Star Trek Rock Love jewelry collaboration. And I, I have the, the Vulcan script pendant and it's just really beautiful. And doesn't necessarily scream Star Trek. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's something that we got into when I when I worked there is is what we called a secret handshake as opposed to kind of mm -hmm. slap a logo syndrome. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of licensees that literally just slapped logos onto existing product like Remco back in the day. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we really discussed when I was working at CBS, and I'm sure that this is something that I know that this is something that they're sticking to is that we want more things that are a little bit more subtle. And so the the Rock Love collection is a really good example of that. It, it looks like a beautiful piece of jewelry, but if you're a Star Trek fan and you see somebody wearing that, you're like, oh my God, that's Star Trek. To me, what's cool about that is it, it points out, at least in, from my point of view, that when you study a, a text like Star Trek, there's, there's sort of these two histories running parallel. There's the history of Star Trek The Show, and then there's the history of the, the, that the merch tells that you, you learn through the material culture. And that history is really cool because you get to participate in that. Unless you've acted in Star Trek, in which case I love you. But if you are a fan, then the merch is the thing that you have. 
It's sort of like you can tell the history of the Great Depression through history, or you can tell it through depression glass, the stuff that like came with, you know, oatmeal back in the, the 30s, and you can kind of see what people had. This, the merch, brings us the joy of finding something first, of, of finding out about something first, and then, you know, telling all our friends about it and, and, uh, really being able to, to, to be that sort of main character in your own Star Trek. So anything that enables that is something I'm going to love. The, the visitor pins, for instance, that came out with the Picard show. Mm. I love that because now I can put that on my jacket and be a Starfleet visitor, which is, let's face it, the highest rank I would ever achieve at Star Trek, at Starfleet. So I love that. I, I, I think that that's just so much fun. And I love participating in that. So should we get into some of the history? Yeah. We sure can. Giant topic of history. Now, before we even start, I just want to say there is no way we can possibly <laughs> touch on everything. <laughs> so <laughs> if we leave out your favorite, I'm sorry. <laughs> Pre-sorry. Okay. <laughs> so it all starts, right, with aluminum model toys. Aluminum model toys basically got the license to produce Star Trek model kits before the show premiered. It got it in uh, August 1966, a month before the series debuted. And basically, the exchange was, hey, Gene Roddenberry, we'll build you a shuttlecraft to use on your show in exchange for the rights to produce models of the ships on the show. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and they're cool. They're cool models. Yeah, and they're still, they're actually being reproduced, uh, well, they were being reproduced uh, quite recently. So those were, those were still, not AMT themselves, but they were, they were being reproduced by another company and, you know, for the nostalgia factor. <laughs> with, with my dad, that's actually something he uh, remembers having. The, so does my dad. I asked my dad yeah. the other day, what was your mm -hmm. first, what was your first piece of merchandise? And, and he said it was the models. Mine, my first piece of merchandise was actually folders. <laughs> Like mm. school supplies, <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah, my dad, my dad had uh, several model kits when he was a kid. Yeah, yeah, same here, and uh, has since tried to track them down on eBay again, and and uh, and all that. Yeah, so they produced the Galileo, of course, which is the shuttle they built, a uh, Bird of Prey, uh, Space Station, of course, the Enterprise mm -hmm. was the most popular, and the AMT Enterprise model was actually used on screen in the show mm -hmm. twice. So they distressed one of the models for the Doomsday Machine as the USS Constellation, and then used one again in the Ultimate Computer as the USS Excalibur. So then after that, the is that Lincoln Enterprises uh, after that mm -hmm. sort of came out with the uh, – so they came out with the pendant, right? And that was the, the big sort of mail-away pendant? When Lincoln Enterprises started, it was formed by, by B. Joe and John Trimble under the, the hand of Gene Ronberry, and it – Seems to have started. There are lots of different origin stories for Lincoln Enterprises, but one of the, the most widely accepted explanations is that it started to handle fan mail uh, after a letter from Isaac Asimov was directed to the wrong department and received a signed cast photo. So <laughs> good job, yeah. everybody, on that. Um, it was essentially a mail order catalog, and it started selling anything that was flat scripts, copies of the original Star Trek pitch, copies of the show Bible, bumper stickers, film cells, uh, inside Star Trek, the newsletter. So anything that could be sent in a flat rate envelope 
and then eventually got to to larger things. What I think is cool about that is how that really did impact the show in the sense of the Vulcan Idic symbol is is sort of made to be sold in in that catalog. And you often sort of study merch going the other direction. It's it's the the show creates the thing. And then the merch sort of spins it off into whatever. In this case, you sort of see the merch being like, hey, we have a need for a thing. And the show is like, oh, I got you. Here's this pendant you can totally sell. Yeah. So inside Star Trek number one, the very first catalog slash magazine, whatever you want to define it as, had a, a piece on a Vulcan pendant. And that was that magazine issue came out in July 1968. We didn't see an Idic on screen until October of that year. And then by May of the following year, uh, we see the first actual ad in Inside Star Trek issue 11 to purchase your Idic pendant for $7.50, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> right. And those are really tough to find now, too, I think, like mm-hmm. the original, original, you know, ones. I've, I've looked for them on eBay to, to no avail. I do like that they went that they kind of went back and forth on on you know one inspiring the other and then going back and inspiring it back. So I I, I like that about really Star Trek. In a way, it's a precursor to now because from the eighties onward, it was always like then you know Hasbro is in the room to you know sort of <laughs> advise on the Transformers thing because Hasbro is like we need to sell this product. I don't really care what your show is. Obviously, it's not that cynical for Star Trek, but. It's it's sort of a great ahead of its time sort of sales marketing technique. Growing up in the eighties, I mean, our Saturday morning cartoons were essentially half hour long commercials for the toys. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can thank Reagan for that uh, for uh, deregulating the FCC, and then you know, and I, I say thank uh, uh, sarcastically in case that's not coming through <laughs> my sick voice. It, it's it's yeah. I mean, we we did we got sold a lot of stuff. So there's this really neat quote from a paper. Uh, by about the Australian Star Trek fan community. The quote is from a, a fan named Stone, or calling themselves Stone, uh, who says, Lincoln Enterprises was the one source at the time for devotees like myself to get real juicy Star Trek merchandise. Not model kits and books that you could buy in stores, but even cooler stuff you couldn't get anywhere else, like pins, medallions, belt buckles, the original Star Trek Concordance and its third season supplement, and scripts and writer's guides. Yeah, I mean, that was, I feel like that is... Interestingly enough, I think if you're outside the Star Trek fandom, you might not understand that, but it's stuff like that that fans get crazy about that this they feel like they're part of the process if they're able to get their hands on say a script or the, or one of the Bibles. And so I I understand why back in the day that was a big deal because I feel like it's even a big deal now. I mean, mm-hmm. people get very excited over you know these memos and stuff that that get released into the fandom via Roddenberry usually because they have all of that stuff in their archive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, fans get real excited about that stuff and I understand why. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it happens sort of in two different ways maybe for different people. It's it's either you're building your own avatar in the Star Trek universe. You are sort of deciding like, okay, this character is who I am, so I'm going to surround myself with that. Or you are sort of building your own universe around yourself. So by having the scripts and the stuff you are constructing your own holodeck in a way, except it's not holographic, it's real, mm-hmm. and you're you're sort of living in it. And uh, I say, what more fun could you have than that? So really quickly on the changing hands of Lincoln Enterprises. So started by John and, and B. Joe Trimble, 
they were only around for about nine months before they were fired slash let go. There's still even some like controversy around that, so we're not going to get into a lot of detail. But uh, their immediate replacement was Stephen Whitfield, who was a marketing exec with AMT. And then Majel Barrett took over in the 1980s. And eventually, what was Lincoln Enterprises became the merchandising arm of Roddenberry.com, which slowed up merchandising production and eventually shut down the Roddenberry shop uh, within the last year. But uh, after Majel took over in the 80s, the product range was increased to like props and technical documents. The tribbles used in Trials and Tribulations were purchased from Lincoln Enterprises. Uh, but by the time we reached 1993, the merchandising part of, of Lincoln Enterprises was down to Majel and two staff members. And even then, she was saying she gave an interview in Strange New Worlds. Uh, the interview's titled Lincoln Enterprises, A Little Piece of Star Trek. She said, I'd like to go in for the dolls and the plates, the games and the electronic parts and so forth. In other words, not just memorabilia, but merchandise. Right. And I think that part of the issue with that, obviously, was that Viacom was the overbearing situation there, that they didn't fully own the rights to be making merchandise. But Majel was very creative in, in her whole time being in charge of it. Uh, she came up with some really good ideas that couldn't always be executed, unfortunately. Well, and, and I mean, if that date is by 1993, then she, I mean, there, there was just so much stuff by 1993 that, that you get your hands on for Star Trek. So that comment of hers, I think, rings really true. Well, we could spend all day on Lincoln Enterprises, mm -hmm. but we're going to keep moving and go back to the 60s. And I think we have to talk about Remco. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Holly, you were you were mentioning label slapping before. <laughs> Remco and Enco are the two. I mean, they rhyme with each other, so I always have to remember who did what. <laughs> yeah, Remco was a company that had existing product, and when they got the Star Trek license, they literally just put Star Trek stickers onto existing product, and it absolutely 100% does not make sense when we look back on it today because they had things that had nothing to do that were not made for anything that appeared on screen. So they had this ridiculous astro helmet and everybody's thinking of the Spock helmet right now, but this is actually this bug-eyed yellow helmet. They had trains, they had tanks, and they just started calling everything astro whatever and then put Star Trek on it. And that was the way that they kind of got away with not having to actually put in a lot of money to the brand. I mean, that was really what they were trying to do is is not have huge expenses on top of picking up this new license. And it's just <laughs> the product is hilarious to look back on. So I, I want to push back a little bit because I, I love this stuff. And to me, it totally <laughs> makes sense. Oh, no, like, I love it. But ironically, because it's <laughs> sure, I sure. think it's ridiculous. I mean, and, and I, I, that makes sense. I, I mean, it's, 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 if you look at the, the history of rack toys, which is really what these things are, rack toys, the word rack toys comes from basically selling toys on pharmacy racks, uh, for very cheap instead of toy stores, which was huge in the seventies, huge in the eighties. And it basically happened like that. This is why you have a pair of handcuffs that are bland, branded with the Incredible Hulk. I don't know why. You have uh, the same motorcycle that's used for Ghost Rider and Chips. I don't know why. But then, like, you get into that area with Star Trek, too, where this was a whole movement uh, that was going on where 
companies realized, look, we have this product. If we, we could put a million stickers on it, if a handful of people buy them in pharmacies, we'll make a profit. You, you know, kids are running around pharmacies all the time, grabbing toys off the shelves. And all of a sudden it becomes, you know, mommy, can you buy this from your daddy? Can you buy this from your whoever? You know, they, the, the companies making these things feel like, well, yeah, who's going to resist that? And they were pretty much right most of the time. Yeah. Like it, it, so to me, the, the move makes complete sense, especially surrounded by the history of rack toys, which were, was huge at this time. So I, I, yeah, the, this, I, I can't stop tracking this stuff down. Do you have, can I ask? Yeah. It's cause. Like 10 years later, Enco is the company that came up yeah. with the infamous what everybody calls the Spock helmet because that's what's on yeah. the box. But yeah. I mean, really, it wasn't a Spock helmet. It was a Star Trek helmet and you could personalize it with the stickers that came in it. Um, yeah. So, you know, you could write, you could write, even have your own name on it. Do you have a Spock yeah. helmet? Uh, so I don't. Uh, it's too rich for my blood, uh, <laughs> honestly. I That's not to say I haven't looked at many an auction of them. Same. But, you know, but that is one that has uh, eluded me. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I don't think that they would fit on any of our heads <laughs> because they are literally child-sized. Although one of the guys from Star Trek Online at Cryptic made his own and it's adult-sized and I got to wear it and it was very exciting. Yep. That would be Nick. <laughs> But yeah, actually, the Star Trek archive at CBS doesn't have one either. So every now and again, I would go on eBay and see if there was one at a reasonable price that we could obtain and then, you know, integrate into the archive. And as far as I, I never, I never got one. So as far as I know, the Star Trek archive at CBS does not have one of these, but it is the most infamous, ridiculous thing. Uh, that I think exists, but I know what I'm hunting for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so that puts us mid seventies, which means we have to talk about Migo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Marty Abrams. Oh I love man, you. he's a he's a <laughs> he's a he's a character, right? He's interesting. He's got <laughs> he he's had an interesting uh, journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. So the first wave of Migo figures was released in 1974. With Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, and an anonymous Klingon, <laughs> who a lot of people think is Koloth uh, from Trouble with Tribbles. Uhura followed later because, in the words of Marty Abrams, Barbie was popular. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah. So sure. But there were a couple different waves of aliens. There was the, the Gamma 6 playset. Just lots of great classic stuff came out of Migo in the 70s. Stuff that was actually made to look like what was in the show itself, not just stuff that they had existing and started putting labels yeah. on. But sort of, though, because some I of mean, those Klingons <laughs> are are the lizard from yeah, you know, the Marvel. Yeah, they are. I mean, yeah, yeah, the lizard from, what was it, Spider-Man? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, sure, but they were actually producing, I mean, you know, Kirk and Spock were not existing. That is things. true. You're absolutely yeah. correct. <laughs> the f- head sculpts for the actual characters were definitely the best that anybody had seen up to that point. Right. Oh, yeah. They actually looked like the characters. Yeah. Except for Gorn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. The Gorn. Yes, exactly. Because that was the, the lizard. Yeah, thing, yeah. Gorn was the lizard head on top of a Klingon body. And it was right, not even, right. he wasn't green. And, that's, <laughs> you know, that's disappointing. But I mean, also, I feel like that's one of the most collectible items. These weird things are the ones that people really want. It's like getting, yeah. you know, a mistake. <laughs> A mistake and that being like, oh, this is worth a lot of money because they didn't mean to do this. Right. Oh, Boba Fett's name is upside down. That's going to be worth a million dollars. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's it's true. Well, and you mentioned, uh, Sue, just now the the Gamma 6 playset, which what a cool playset. I mean, Mm -hmm. that that was one where that never really sort of appeared on the show. 
but uh, I think was taken from some like unproduced script or something, and they they made this sort of playset out of it uh, with many 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 liberties, obviously. But the 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 monster in the playset was a glove that you put your hand in, so your hand became the monster, and it was just ah, it's so cool. Remember the commercials for those? Yes. <laughs> well, he, he disappears in the transport chamber. Uh, the commercials are real fun. They're great. Yeah, Miko, I think, really had something there. And they, they learned kind of with Planet of the Apes, which they had done before that. And, and they kind of saw how that licensing really could, could make a product take off. Because that's, that's an important sort of transition to talk about, too. The, in the bigger scope of toy history, the transition from sort of we're going to make like this rando toy to know this toy is branded from, you know, this property. And and you saw that in the 60s with Mark suing Marvel, and, and you saw that, you know, in other places. But that was actually a lesson that had to be learned, to make product from a, a show or from a movie. And Mego was, was part of that. Well, and Star Trek was pretty successful for them, mm-hmm. to the point that they were offered Star Wars right. before the film was released, and said no. <laughs> so... Great job. Again, to to quote Marty Abrams, and this is uh, in The Toys That Made Us, the Star Trek episode of The Toys That Made Us on Netflix, he said that Mego controlled 75% of male action, True. excellent phrasing, yeah. um, before Star Wars. And then with Star Wars licensed to Kenner after 1977, for Mego, that uh, percentage dropped down to 30%. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean, here's the thing. Like, I, I know Marty Abrams personally. I've interviewed him in the past. And I mean, he's a lovely, lovely, lovely person. And I, I think that he's good at the toy business as sort of an interesting character overall. And is now, I mean, is now part of the revival too, because Migos mm-hmm. are back on shelves. And I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but just to, just to sort of say that stuff landed so well that now you could bring it back and it still it still works. Yeah, and it's not they're not like recreations by another comp- like he's involved right. with it. Right. Yeah. Which is wild to me. I have a Miko Uhura on my shelf right now. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not like recreation by enti- an entirely different company kind of pretending to be this nostalgia company back in the day that was successful. Like he's involved. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's involved and and other people who are involved are people who were like making the the accessories all throughout the period of time where Mego was no longer a thing. So he basically pulled together all these people who had been Mego fans all this time to just sort of remake Mego with him. And it's just really cool. Yeah. yeah so the, the first run of the Mego toys, unfortunately, came to a close around 1982 when the company filed for bankruptcy. Yep. Yeah. But before that, we had the motion picture. Yes. In 1979. And there was a Paramount merchandising executive, Don Steele, who struck as many licensing deals as she possibly could for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Unfortunately, it seems they did not know if they wanted to market to adult collectors or kids for toys. No, yeah, that got lost in translation. (laughs) (laughs) But we did get one of the very first movie-themed McDonald's Happy Meals. The first. Out of all the of this. The very first, yeah. The absolute first, yeah. And I'm actually looking at the box right now. So the thing is, before we started <laughs> this, I pulled a bunch of Star Trek merch out from the collection, and that Happy Meal box, along with the Happy Meal toys, is right in front of me as we speak. And I can tell you, just by looking at it, this box is fantastic. On on one of the flaps, the Enterprise uh, refit is burping, for example. 
It has a little word bubble that says burp. And you can <laughs> connect the dots to make the Enterprise. And on the back, there's a, a comic that is about Mr. Spock and goes on. There's a maze. It's a cool box with some cool uh, uh, merch. I'm looking at my mint and bag uh, Star Trek watch right now. Obviously, it's not an actual watch. It's basically just this is a strip of plastic that you can kind of put these stickers on of of, uh, of the Star Trek uh, cast and, and stuff. But yeah, I mean, this is this is great. And, and imagine what it was like, because right before that, in, in Happy Meal history, you got the, the toys that were just sort of the generic kind of school supplies. That was kind of their first Happy Meal. And then you get this. I mean, this is this is pretty uh, big. I would have I would have been excited. I mean, and it also set a precedence for you know yeah. doing futures. So the fact that Star Trek can take kind of take credit for that is wild to me. Every time I see like a new McDonald's Happy Meal toy or whatever, which actually I don't see a lot of that anymore. But when I was a kid and I saw them, I'd be like, mm, Star Trek started that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just brought back some of the classic toys, didn't they? Yeah. Well, so I, I have two full sets of the McDonald's 40th Happy Meal anniversary sets, uh, one mint in bag, one, one loose. And they're, they're cool, but you know, it, it does say something about nostalgia because I'm looking at them and they're not, they're not the old toys. They're, they're sort of remade versions of the old toys. Mm. And y- you look at them and, and all I can kind of think is like, oh, that, that hamburger that changes into a robot. Uh. Yeah, it's cool, but it's not the one that I had. And then I go into my collection and I find the vintage one and I'm much happier. I 100% had that hamburger that turns into a yeah. robot. Yeah, it's But a I cool mean, toy. the nostalgia factor of all this is because the yes. people that are running the show now are the ones that were kids then. Yes. Yeah. So this yes. is like an entire generation of people who have grown up and now are running the show and they're like, I want that because yes. that's what I liked as a kid. Well, and to get back to Sue's point earlier, we were sold stuff all the time as kids. Yeah. That yes. was our programming. So the fact that it has created these adults that are obsessed with understanding merch, I think makes total sense because that was our childhood. Our childhood was defined by stuff. You know, I, I I study it for that very reason. We had our Happy Meal. We had also in 1979, Milton Bradley got yeah. into the Star Trek game with a literal Star Trek game. Yes. <laughs> they also, their electronic side had a battery operated phaser. Yeah. Which like had like lasers in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like laser pointer type lasers. Exactly. Which seems way ahead of its time for 1979. Well, they had to compete with the Star Wars game, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool, but also kind of low tech compared to that. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Also in 79, by the way, with that movie, uh, a company called Knickerbocker uh, released some pretty cool plushes. And uh, I'm holding the Captain Kirk plush right now uh, from from that. And uh, <laughs> with the with the with the it's got like a, a squishy head, right? Yeah. Like the it's rubber. There's one yes. of those in the Star Trek archive too. Those are actually really cool. Oh, they're great. And he's wearing his Admiral's uniform, yeah. He sure is. Yeah. And he's got little he's got little velcro on his hands so you can like velcro him to something and or to himself. Or to himself, right? So he can hold <laughs> his own hand. Right, but I don't really know like how many things you can velcro him to unless you're doing it to your shirt because there aren't too many other velcro sensitive places you know but i guess you could drag him along with your shoes if you have shoes that are velcro i don't know but he's cool like it's it's well it also speaks to what we were saying before of like yes you clearly did not know what to do with this property because this exists alongside the game alongside everything else we're talking about 
And there is a question of like, okay, who who is this for? Well, you know, now it's for me, but at the time, <laughs> I don't know. It, but it is a it is a cool little odd piece. I I I, I do like it. And they made a Spock. They made Kirk and Spock. They made Kirk and Spock. Did they make anything more than that? No, that was it. I didn't it. think that they did because I, no. I mean, those are the two that we had that the CBS archive has. So yeah. I didn't think that there was any more. Um, I liked those. I thought they were. I I thought those were cute little guys. So <laughs> same, same here. Well, so I think that if we're talking about the seventies, we should probably talk about the Star Trek comics that came with the record. Oh, oh yeah. I have some of those. So me too, right? You can find these a lot of places. They're yeah. at like I've seen them in Vegas a lot. So here's the deal with that. Like they're they're cool as a as a concept as a product and and the idea of sort of learning to read through these things is is cool. But if you know the Star Trek comics that came with the record, you know that Ahura is replaced by a white blonde woman in she those is. comics. And mm-hmm. so for talking about sort of merch decisions that were made that fundamentally changed the source text. There was one big one in the 70s, and and it was that. And I think that uh, we sort of have to acknowledge that and say, like, yeah, merch certainly doesn't always get it quite right in ways that are not exactly funny. Like, I wouldn't point to that and be like, oh, ha ha. It's like, no, it's a serious kind of oversight. Yeah, that's actually, I would have really loved to have been a fly on the wall in the conversation that led to them doing that just to see what their thought yeah. process was. I mean, obviously, I kind of know what their thought process was. But yeah, that is definitely problematic. Yeah. The story that I have heard is that the colorist had never seen the show. Mm-hmm. So they were just guessing. Okay. But I don't know how true that is. That's the same argument that they had for the animated series back in the day. The reason why, you know, Tribbles were pink and all of that stuff was that the colorist was colorblind. Right. Or or <laughs> racist. Sort like. of the same, but <laughs> I feel like that's a weak argument. Yeah, and the sorry, the animated series book by, you know, friend of the show Aaron Harvey debunks that. And that was just that pink purple thing was just that guy's color scheme. Yeah. Right. That's what he liked. That's that was his like color theory. So the that whole thing is like completely untrue, which is why mm-hmm. I think that you know them saying that about those comics is probably also untrue. I agree. I mean, because if I'm assigned to make something out of something I've never seen, at the very least, I will ask somebody, "Hey, what does this person look like?" And they will right. tell me. I mean, I feel like that's what you do as a professional. You yes. do your due diligence so that you can do your job. Right. That's incorrect. <laughs> Fun times in the 70s with Star Trek. In terms of interesting mistakes, though, the, the next item that I'm holding from this era is the uh, collection of party paper party plates uh, from, the, uh, from the time in which the USS Enterprise is listed as NCC 1311. Yeah. <laughs> uh, McCoy is wearing yellow. Kirk is wearing red. It, it, they are branded as fan- fast color plastic coated plates for hot or cold food. This is the eight to six and three quarters inch plate variety. I don't see an exact date on them, but they are from Party Creations. I'm assuming late 60s, early 70s is my guess on those. I think I was with you when you found those. You might have been, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, that's possible, actually. <laughs> if I remember correctly, they also had napkins and cups. Oh, I, yeah. And I think there's a Mylar balloon that was part of that collection as well. Oh, my? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And yeah, they were also ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I do think we need to jump into the 80s. Yeah, probably should. 
This is where some stuff really starts picking up, because of course, at the end of the decade, you have Next Generation. Oh, but the beginning of the decade was so sad. It was, because of what happened with the motion picture. Nobody really wanted to license Star Trek movies. Wrath of Khan had almost no licensing in 1982, although there was a digital wristwatch that was label slapped. It was basically like Space Invaders game. And the what I think is really cool, the Hamilton Collection plates started in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> Holly summed it up well. <laughs> Those are another thing that I see and just ironically love because yeah. yikes. I mean, those were I just I remember those everywhere in my childhood. Not necessarily the Star Trek ones, but like a decorative collector's plates <laughs> were everywhere. Yeah. Huge. Those were a, like I I mean, I just feel like I would see them hanging on the wall at my grandmother's house. Like that's yep. that was and I <laughs> I have to be honest, I don't know what their target market was for that. Like moms, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah, I mean it's a it's a hey, you know, little so and so like Star Trek. I don't really know what Star Trek is, but hey, I saw this ad for a plate in this magazine I was reading. So But I mean if these. it's a kid, are you giving a a, <laughs> Maybe. a breakable plate <laughs> that is you can't eat off of them? Is that just my family? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Why would you give that to a child? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> I had one, it was after Voyager started. So I am just trying to think what age I was. I had to be 15 or 16. And I had on my wall in my like teenage bedroom, a Hamilton collection plate of the four doctors. Nice. nice. And I thought it was the coolest thing. Nice. <laughs> Those are, if you ever go to the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas, there is uh, one vendor in the vendor's room that always has a ton of those. And they're just so fun to look at to see what little vignettes Hamilton thought to put together, especially when you got into like the mid nineties. Has anyone ever uh, eaten off of them? Like, isn't, isn't that the apex of like collector? So I'm like, Oh, you know, I don't even care about, I'm just eating my, but uh, they literally my... say you can't I know eat you off can't. of them. I know. <laughs> like I know. you can poison yourself with the paint. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Whatever. I need to put my taquitos somewhere. Oh my gosh. Use your paper <laughs> plates, man. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> Uh, but you're right. It, they they do come up like just in, in on mass in these uh, conventions, and I I love it every time I see them. <laughs> All right. So 1984, we get ten point articulated action figures for Star Trek three from Ertl. Yeah, yeah. Ertl. Well, and Ertl. Yeah, Ertl is is. Uh, I like Ertl. I like Ertl stuff. I think they're often the overlooked kind of contributor to that. Their uh, their three and three quarter inch figures are, I think, quite wonderful. I mean, they're they're uh, they've got those maroon the monster maroons on and uh they're uh, they're cool. I I have some uh in box and uh I really like them. And while we're on the original series movies, we have to mention the 1989 craft marshmallow dispenser for Star Trek 5. Ah, I have yes! one. Me too. <laughs> I have one and I take it camping with me and I actually Do you really? I I actually use it. Yeah, my friends and I go camping every September. And do you call them marshmallows? Uh, yes, we do. And uh, it doesn't really work. Yeah. I, I can't bring myself to open mine. I'm so glad you've opened yours. Yeah. my. I mean, I still have the original box that it got like nailed yeah. in or whatever. And it has like all the little the little slips inside that say, you know, yep. all of the You got nonsense. the coupons. Yeah, I have all of that. But yep. I've, I, we actually tried it one year. I still take it camping as a nostalgia thing, but we don't use it. The first year I had it, we tried using it and the marshmallows, marshmallows, excuse me, 
they just like stick to the side. Like it doesn't actually dispense. <laughs> so, but yeah. yeah, it's, it's so fun. There's, it's such a fun little thing. It's a great product. And I am so glad that this podcast has now turned into the Marshmallow Dispenser Appreciation Club because I also love that. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it's really cool. Well, and, and I mean, it, it does bring up sort of an interesting side of Trek merch too, which is the mail away. And the mail aways have kind of been there, as we point out, really since the beginning, but this is like sort of tying in craft and, and then other things would tie in like Kellogg's, TWA, not with the, the mail aways, but to just backtrack a little bit to 86, they, they on their flights gave out playing card packs. If we all remember, you know, the days where you could get playing cards on airplanes. I actually never asked for, I don't remember those days, but I'm sure someone does. And the, the playing card packs were branded with Star Trek for the Voyage Home on video cassette. It was like the first video cassette tie-in product. And it was for, for that. I, I have it right here in front of me. So just the, the stuff that you got from other companies that just decided, Oh, we'll do Star Trek. I think is is pretty cool, and the marshmallow dispensers in that category. The last time I brought this marshmallow dispenser out, I was in Yosemite too. Oh, perfect. <laughs> did you sing? Did you do the? Uh... We did. We did yeah. uh, the row, row, row your boat thing. Nice with a bunch of people that work at JPL. Actually, oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> those are the people I go camping with. A bunch of people that work for NASA. <laughs> I admire your life deeply. I just want to say that <laughs> you have an awesome life. <laughs> Well, as we get to the late 80s, we have to talk about next-gen merchandise, mm -hmm. and that brings us to Galoob. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, and they're action figures. Mm -hmm. yep. They apparently, I did not know this until this week, produced a four-inch Enterprise toy that was a prize in Honey Nut Cheerios. So I have that. I have that toy. Of course and, you do. <laughs> and the thing is, with, with that toy, that's, that's part of the, the story. The, the whole story is that, yes, you could get it that way. Or you could get it by buying one of the larger model kits that sometimes, in a, in a very, very limited edition way, would have that thrown in. And it was actually technically like kind of a small model. You did have to put it together a little bit. But what was cool about it was it came with this uh, booklet that showcased all of the Galoob action figures in it. And, and that, I, I have that as well. And it's, it's really cool because they were never really advertised that way. I mean, it's, it's such a dramatic kind of booklet. It's really a cool piece, and it was the first sort of announcement that the new Trek is now stepping into the world of of toys. And you know, if I were getting that at the time, I would have thought, "Oh, cool! This is this is really exciting." And and the Galoob figures are great. Galoob is a company that I I and I voiced this before. I have my my issues with mainly because of their treatment of the female characters in Star Trek, aka not really producing them outside of Tasha Yar. And then kind of when asked about it. Years later, a couple of the executives, former executives from Galoob, were sort of like, yeah, we would have, we were totally going to do that if there was another wave. Um, we would have produced the women and other aliens. And that's a direct quote from them. And I'm like, so that's kind of how we're lumping, you know, people like Crusher and Troy. It's like, that doesn't, that's not fair. That's not fair to, to who they were on the show and, 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 uh, and just to, to the, to female characters in general. And, and so, that that's really uh, what disappoints me the most about Galoob. That is unfortunately a trend with yeah. next gen merchandise, specifically for Crusher. Yeah, and I I mean everybody who listens to Women at Warp knows I'm biased, <laughs> but typically if 
going after the first season, after the departure of, of Tashi Yar, if a line was going to include one of the women characters, they were going to pick Troy. Mm-hmm. And so there is a significant lack, in my opinion, of Crusher merchandise throughout the TNG era. And in fact, I have every single licensed Beverly Crusher figure, and they all fit on one shelf. Yeah, and I think that the uh, part of the reason why that's unfortunate is you think back to the original series and how the trio was Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, McCoy being the Doctor. And, and the Doctor is an important part of the way that they would set up a cast is that you oh, you had to have a doctor. Every series has a doctor. And the fact that not only is she a woman, but she's the doctor in this scenario gets left out of the merchandising is is disappointing. Yeah, I mean, she's a doctor. She's a, a single mom. I mean, she's, she's inc- I mean, an incredible character. And, and it, it, I agree it, with everything you said. It's, it's disappointing is the word. All right. So there is still so much more. We got to start powering through some of this stuff. playmates we'll be here all day playmates playmates in 92 but first hallmark ornament started in 91 they did and this is one of the Uh, things that i think that you know people kind of choose to focus on and and i and i understand why they're still producing product up to this day so i feel like it's easy to be a completionist if what you're doing is Hallmark ornaments. Right, which is why I think <laughs> it's a good thing to choose to collect. Yeah, there's there's a couple a year. There's plenty of notice. It's the same time every year. They're not ridiculously expensive. I mean, unless you get something like the I, – I feel like the, the toughest one to find if you started collecting today is the original Enterprise that they made. And I believe that was 91. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first one. Well, and and the the convention exclusives and stuff like don't they always have something for like New York Comic Con or something like that, right? They do. I they usually have one for San Diego, and right that one is sometimes difficult to find. I think they had a gold plated one when I was working for CBS. Yeah, that was kind of difficult to find because it was an exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, this if you're a completionist, that's a that's a pretty easy thing to go with. Right, right, and they were the first really to to make animated series merch. I mean, they because they, they just did the the ornaments for a couple of them for the animated series. I think uh, they made uh, Emress and uh, Eric's. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Eric's. I love him. Back to yes. Playmates in '92, which were those those are the action figures that I grew up with. Oh yeah, and oh yeah, me the too. first license, the first time they were licensed, only lasted six years. It was '92 to '98. Which is kind of astonishing for the amount of action figures they produced. Right, right. Because, I mean, there were so many, like, little one-offs that they produced. You know, this character wearing just this specific outfit. Right. Um, and some of those are, are quite sought after. I mean, Data in the, the red tunic is is really, really uh, sought after. And obviously, you know, the more common ones are frequently in the dollar bins at, at some of these uh, toy shows and conventions. but. The rare ones, I mean, still are are, are pretty uh, looked after. The Thomas Riker one, uh, you know, dropped in, in price recently. But when I was a kid, that was all the rage. And uh, also the, you know, Tapestry Picard and more mail-aways with those and, you know, more more of those included with other things like the VHS that came with the Worf uh, action figure that was Playmates. So a lot more sort of intermingling of figures with other stuff there. Remember the Tom Paris as like the mutation of himself oh, from God. Threshold? I've given that as a gift so many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yes. Yes. Ooh, the worst episode. <laughs> totally. I do want to note that, Jonathan, you and Jara did an entire episode uh, of Women at Work yes. on these action figures. That is yes. episode S5, released back in March 2016. Can you believe it? Um, <laughs> so for a lot more detail on Playmates in particular, go listen to that episode, because we don't have time to do it here. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does say something like, once you drop that name, it opens up all of this. And I think that that says something just about the power of that figure mm-hmm. line, that we all are just so invested in it. Something that I love and I had right from the start was the 1996 30th anniversary Star Trek Barbie. I have a set too. Uh, <laughs> yes, same. I could have sworn that there was that somebody told me that Barbie made a Star Trek set a lot earlier, like in the 60s, and that this wasn't the original. But I can't find evidence of that. No, anywhere. I think 96 was the first time Barbie was. I mean, they, we did a, the 30th and then we did the, the 50th. 50th, which I was, yeah. I was part of that. That was an interesting process, <laughs> especially the, uh, yeah, of the Vena Barbie doll was interesting to do. Um, but yeah, I think, I think 96 was the first time Barbie was directly involved. I really doubt Mattel would have done that in the 60s. They, they were marketing, you know, in a pretty traditional yeah. way to a, to a girl's market. I, I don't know that. That's something they would have even taken the risk on then. So 2001, we had Art Asylum and Diamond Select come onto the scene. They started with the Enterprise figures. And even one of their TOS-era phasers was used on screen in Enterprise's Mirror episodes. And now that phaser is sought after as a screen-used prop. Yep. So that's pretty cool. I'm just going to power through some of these. <laughs> 2009, we had a Burger King toy tie-in. Sorry, McDonald's. For Star Trek 2009. Yep. With cups. Yeah, I have a couple cups. of those cups. Yep. I have the the weirdly shaped Spock on my dresser. 2008-2009 Playmates came back on the scene for part two. That's also when we got QMX was licensed for Star Trek 2009. They got a fuller license for everything in 2012. 2012 also got us Eagle Moss when they started their ship replicas. 2013 Hasbro was licensed for Star Trek Into Darkness, and we got the Creo, the the sort of block Lego-esque <laughs> enterprise. Yeah, yeah. fake Legos. 2013 brought us Funko Pop. I have, I'm going to spend a little more time here because I have some Funko Pop issues, which includes that the original line, the, the TOS line, was Kirk, Spock, and Scotty, not even McCoy, Scotty, a generic Andorian, a generic Klingon, and an Orion slave girl. Uh, the reason that they did Scotty Ugh. was so that they would have a red shirt. Hmm. Yeah, so that they would have all three colors, and then they did. I suppose that makes sense. But the the one woman character released is literally a slave. Yeah, slave girl, Which yep. is great. The next gen figures were Picard, Riker, Worf, Jordy, Troy, Data, Locutus, and a generic Klingon, which looks exactly like Worf. <laughs> mm-hmm. So no Beverly, no Beverly, no Uhura, no really anybody and any of the women characters except for Troy at this point. And for the Star Trek Beyond line, they did release Uhura, sorry, Uhura Bones and Jayla. So it was a much fuller cast for Star Trek Beyond figures. There were nine of them, but they had not released any more. There were no DS9 or Voyager figures. And it appears that Funko no longer has the Star Trek license, if you search their website. Yeah, yeah, I don't think they do. 
<laughs> it's it, everything you say is spot on, and it's something I've I've written about with Funko too. It's it's because there are other sort of ways in which they do this. When they released their Jurassic Park Funkos, there were no human female characters in that line, except for Ellie, who was not independently sold. She was sold as part of the Gas Jeep, mm-hmm. which was branded as Gas Jeep, and you just sort of got it, and there was an Ellie in it. So I don't know what's going on. It's it's really troubling, though, and I think you're right to call attention to it. But moving on from Funko, uh, we'll jump to the 50th anniversary. Yay! Where we got Yay! we got more Barbies. We got Build a Bear. We got Mac Cosmetics. Yep. Mega Blocks. The the wooden pin mates I think came out of the the 50th yep. anniversary collection. I'm sure there's more that I'm missing. Yeah, the Barbie I uh, mentioned before that I was involved in that. Uh, Mattel would come up to the Star Trek archive with little heads of the Vena character, which was a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive, I believe, and several different versions of the green. And I remember on two different occasions them coming up and us having hours-long conversation about the shade of green <laughs> and whether it should be a blue undertone, which is what I was uh, fighting for, or a yellow undertone, which I thought was more Enterprise-esque, and so I was fighting kind of against that. But yeah, I have <laughs> many fond memories of talking about that shade of green. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And and by the way, alongside this stuff, maybe a little bit before, the, the Kellogg's mailaways continued, right? Mm-hmm. So you got the you could get the, the two thousand nine shirt through the Kellogg's mailaway for, for the, the two thousand nine movies and the, the communicator badge. And so it feels like along with this there's the there's the constant kind of simmering of merch outside of, of toys or surrounding toys. Uh, they had wa- the two thousand nine film had waffles too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Mac Cosmetics was fun to work on, too. I mean, they built that huge situation for uh, <laughs> selling it at conventions. And it was it, it started at San Diego Comic-Con, and it was outdoors mm-hmm. and stuff. And then when they wanted to bring it to the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas, which doesn't really have an outdoor space, and even if it did, you wouldn't want to be out there in the middle of August. They they ended up being able to put it inside in the vendor's room, but it just just came in under the ceiling. But yeah, Mac Mac did a really good job investing in that line and then the marketing for it. So I have a lot of friends that still have some of that product. Oh, I definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> so since 2016, anything new? I couldn't think of anything that has actually... Yeah really been released as a line. I know we've gotten some Titan minis for Discovery. We've gotten the Gentle Giant Saru bust. We've got the Picard wine and wine glasses. Diamond Select has done, they did the Kirk and Spock from the Abrams movies, plus a Borg, which is actually a really cool Borg, where you can replace the eye pieces and arm pieces and stuff like that. There's been a lot of books. They've done They've done a lot of interesting books. They, they got into doing the autobiographies of the captains. They got into doing some parody books, like Fun with Kirk and Spock and stuff like that. So I feel like they're... And then obviously like the the alcohol that they've gone into, the spirits and the wine, and, the, and there's actually a, a beer licensee as well. So I feel like, yeah, they're getting into more... And again, this is a result of, you know, when we were kids and now we're adults and, and we want more... Uh, things that pertain to our age now. One of my favorite things that's out right now 
and that started when I was working for CBS was the line of bags and purses that a crowded coop did. They've renamed, since renamed themselves the coop. But when they started, they had bags that they were just putting the logo on. Again, I have this, this purse that's a black bowling style bag. And it was, you know, the, the black and it had the three colors on it. It was really nice. And then across the top, it said, has a Star Trek logo in gold and it's very big and very gaudy. And I recall having conversations with Marion Cordry at CBS, who was my coworker and is now in charge of the licensing arm of things. You know, like why can it should be like a lot more subtle. And they really took that to heart and they still to this day are producing items that are more like, again, I call it a secret handshake. And my favorite thing that they have produced is the Klingon bags. There's a messenger bag that you can carry around a laptop in and there's a purse. Uh, the message, with the Batleth. With the Batleth on it, but it doesn't say Star Trek. It's got a Batleth. The strap on the messenger bag is Klingon Baldrick, like Worf's. That's not on the purse. The purse is just a black strap. And then you open it up and the lining inside is a bunch of Klingon weapons. But the only thing that says Star Trek on it is this this little thing on the inside, the little tag on the inside. So if you're walking down the street with that, it just looks like an ordinary purse. But if you're a Star Trek fan, you know, oh my God, that's a Batleth. That's a Klingon purse. Which is, so that's one of my favorite licensees right now, producing stuff that is not only a secret handshake, but also either unisex or specific to women, which was also not a thing when I started working for the brand. They didn't even have women's cut t-shirts, which for Marion and I was like, there are two women that work in the licensing department and one guy, and we don't even get product that fits us properly. Well, we've, you know, on the show, we've talked about the the driving force in fandom being the women for a long time, creating the fanzines, creating the conventions, starting the letter writing campaign. But it seems like merchandise, when marketed in such a way, has mostly been marketed towards men. Right. Which is unfortunate. And and I'm I'm glad that I kind of had a hand in the five years that I was with with the franchise to be like, the licensing office is three people. John Van Sitters, Marion Cordry, and me. And two of the three people that work out of that office are women and we don't mm-hmm. have stuff that fits us properly. And I was like, I just want a women's cut t-shirt. <laughs> I'm also only 4'10 and under 100 pounds. So there was never any extra smalls either. So I really kind of fought for that as well. So, I mean, women being a driving force is still a thing to this day. And Jonathan, you can probably speak to this more directly, but as far as I understand it, like, gendered marketing of toys started around the late 70s. No, earlier than that, it, it really started with Hasbro uh, doing G.I. Joe. And the idea was that that there's no way a boy would want to play with a doll. So they made an action mm-hmm. figure. And that's that's kind of how G.I. Joe was marketed. And monetarily speaking, it, it worked. Uh, I mean, it, it, it I, I think one of the things sort of capitalism has taught us throughout the 20th century is that once you start splitting uh, into girls and boys, companies start to make more off of their stuff. Uh, and I, the impact on society, though, I mean, that's that's a completely different I- issue. So, so they started to market things that way, really since, you know, 64, 65. Uh, and then that, that kind of just amped up and up and up. I, I think that now we're, we're entering into an era that kind of is starting to make me feel a little better. Like, I like that companies like Hasbro and Mattel are trying to address, like, okay, 
you know, what, how can we maybe blow up those categories a little bit by making, you know, Star Wars Forces of Destiny, by making DC Supergirls, by, you know, combining um, sort of these areas on toy aisles for for both, uh, you know, girl and boy toys now. Obviously, I mean, there are plenty of us kind of in the middle of, of all of this in, in this kind of gender space that maybe doesn't get quite summed up by girl or boy. And, you know, I think the question of, of what about toys for us is, is, you know, still kind of only starting to get addressed. But, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just really sad, uh, to, to kind of point out the, the fact, and it is a fact that women were absolutely and are not given, you know, what they're deserved by this, this pantheon of merch. And, and like Holly said, I'm, I'm glad that she's a part of, fixing that now it's Marion Cordry that's fixing that so she's still there <laughs> and she's still doing that so yeah she is the head of the merchandising line J- John Van Sitters who many fans know of he was promoted into the global franchise management group they have an entire division around Star Trek now which they didn't before but he was promoted into that and I'm sure he still has input on the product but Marion is in charge of it now she is the person that is looking over everything and basically being the way that I described it, what my job was there and what Marion's job is, is, you know, when a submission comes in from a licensee, we're kind of quality control. So like, this isn't the right color. There's the wrong rank on this. And so that's what we were there to do and to kind of give insight, especially with the slap a logo syndrome. Marion and I were both like, can we not? Can we? Mm-hmm. Like, I know that you guys are paying for the name. I get it, but you don't understand like people fans want to be able to like wear stuff to work or carry it back to work and it to not be completely inappropriate to be more subtle so that they can you know kind of flaunt their fandom on a lower scale and still be appropriate in the real world in some ways the enamel pin movement is doing us some favors i think that the the fan sets uh stuff and fan sets is they're such a great company in terms of working with yeah. the fans they're so good with the fans yeah so. yeah and and I, I i like collectibles like that where you know you're not really going to direct a, a pin toward a, a gender mm-hmm. i mean anybody can you know enjoy those and and uh so i really like kind of the the stuff that they've managed to do with that yeah, I think there's there was also a miss when I worked there that I was that I still to this day I'm so sad about is that um her universe who is ran by Ashley Eckstein, she's mm. lovely. I was actually a huge fan of her uh husband when he was a baseball player um and became friendly with him before they even met. But her company, you know, ha- made this Troy dress that's based on her purple jumpsuit and it was adorable, but they embroidered the badge on it. And I was really disappointed and really wanted to them to be talked out of having that, that. Like, if you want to wear it as a costume, you can add a badge. But this is the type of thing that women want to be able to wear to work. And that badge being included and non-removable was kind of, I I really wanted them to not include that. And they ended up including it, which was a bummer, in my opinion. Yeah, they... Her un- I love her universe. Yeah, she's she's a wonderful person. They they do good work, but they're that was the one miss that I was like, uh. And can I just say to 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 the point about her universe? Thank you for for mentioning that that company because as somebody you know who's non-binary in a in a masculine body, I actually wear her universe stuff. I'm I'm wearing it right now, 
And I love it. I mean, it, it really makes me feel great to, to get to wear something that is, you know, is designed f- from, you know, from this woman company to, you know, that's marketed to, to women. But I mean, as a, as a non-binary person, like I just love that, you know, there's, there's stuff there that I can wear and, and I really, it really makes me feel great. That's awesome. I know that I've, I've interviewed actually a few times about her universe, and she said that it started because she just wanted to have a t-shirt that fit right. Right, which is part of the reason why when she signed with, with Star Trek, which I think she signed with Star Trek before I was there, it was right around the same time. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being excited about women's cut t-shirts. And that was yeah. her, that was her thing too. And so I'm glad that, you know, sh- me, her, and Marion all saw eye to eye on that. I was like, I just want a women's cut t-shirt. The first couple years of of her universe, it was fan wear, right? It was hoodies and it was like skater dresses mm-hmm. and t-shirts. And I th- don't think they got the workwear message until they no longer had the Star Trek license. Yeah. Because they did release some Star Wars workwear that sold out in an instant. She made a blaze. She made a Star Wars or a Star Trek blazer, actually. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. She made a like a that was a 50th anniversary collection, and they made a few things. Yeah, yeah, and I really liked that because she made the little shirt, and then the shirt, the material that they used, which was this really lovely logo printed silk that was sort of clever in the way that it was designed, was mm-hmm. the lining of the jacket. And the only time that you would see it is if you open the jacket or if you folded the sleeves a certain way. Yeah. Oh, I've seen that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, it was a really lovely little blazer. Speaking of all of this in total, I would venture to say that I don't think the demographics of Star Trek fandom has changed. I think that marketers that product lines are finally paying attention. That's absolutely to, to those true. demographics. And I think that's partly because the licensees are having better conversation with the licensor that being at this point CBS, you know, through the mm-hmm. years it's been, you know, all of these different variations of the companies, you know, Viacom consumer products back in the 90s and stuff like that. But CBS has, and I mean, maybe I'm biased because I worked with them, for them, um, but they have really good conversations with the licensees about that type of thing. And I think it's important too that, you know, now it seems like there's much more awareness of the message behind the product. So when you're, you know, when you're taking a pair of generic handcuffs or whatever and slapping a sticker on them in the 1970s, that's kind of a, I mean, a fairly kind of lazy thing to do. Now the idea of talking about, well, who's not represented on this? Who is? And, and maybe we can make something to fill some gaps. I mean, I think that that's a, a way more positive uh, way to start to approach this. Yeah, for sure. And I found a, I guess, statistic, you can call it that, that had no outside source, but it's on a, a post called Demographics of a Trekkie. Uh, from t- 2013 by an author named Jackie Murray, who wrote that the average Star Trek fan spends $400 a year on Star Trek merchandise. Next Generation has made over, is that $500 million mm. in syndication and merchandising? Star Trek products have elicited over a billion dollars in retail sales in the last five years. Yeah. So Trekkies spend a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see people like I again, I go to the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas every year and there are fans there that save up all year so that they have a, a budget to buy mer- new merchandise while they're there. Or and I mean in the case of some hardcore collectors to, you know, hunt for that that one special thing that they've been looking for. <laughs> 
speaking of which, I have I have a story from last night uh, that I had mentioned before we started recording that uh, there was there's something that I've been trying to hunt down for many years. In 2008, uh, Kirk S. Adler had a license, uh, the company, and they made um, a bunch of little figurines, Christmas figurines and stuff like that. They made a pair of Kirk and Spock nutcrackers. And I've been collecting nutcrackers since I was a child. All of my holiday decor is based around nutcrackers. I have somewhere in the neighborhood of between 40 and 50 nutcrackers. I have, you know, printed pillows that are nothing but nutcrackers that I, I searched high and low for a print that I liked. But I don't own the nutcrackers, the Star Trek ones. And I've been looking for years to find one that is at a price that I deem appropriate to spend money on. And I look, happened to look last night and there was a Kirk one on eBay and I went to buy it. And in the time it took me to log into eBay, somebody bought it. And I was like, ah, <laughs> my mother was in the other room because I'm at my parents' house for the holiday. And my, my mother was in the other room and was like, are you okay? I was like, ah, like just the most agonizing wail came from the next room. I ended up finding the Spock one a few minutes later and spending a ridiculous amount of money to get that. So now I have the Spock, but I still don't have Kirk. <laughs> and I feel like just based on things I've said during this podcast, I need to tell you it wasn't. <laughs> it, 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 but I've actually, I've seen those nutcrackers. They are really cool. And I think that your, your sort of quest for them is, is awesome. And I mean, again, that goes back to like choosing something and being like, this is what I'm going to collect. For my holiday decor, I was like, nutcrackers, that's my thing. Like, that's going to be my thing. And the fact that these Star Trek nutcrackers exist and I don't own them is ridiculous. <laughs> so I have one, though. I have one, though. It should be coming in the mail next week, and I'm very excited to get Spock. So I know we need to wrap up. I just want to ask you both, what do you think people should be looking forward to in Star Trek merch? Answer any of these questions or all of them. What do you think is missing uh, what are we waiting for? And what do you think needs to be better as we go forward? Yeah, well, I can answer that uh, just for, for myself. I think there's two things happening right now. There's the sort of traditional march of merch that is 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 going on. And then there's customization that's taking off on Instagram and it's taking off on on other social media. And I think that some companies are starting to realize how best to maybe start to merge those two things. So like I'm thinking about specifically Mattel's Creatable World dolls, where you kind of get a doll and you can make it into anything and any gender and anyone that you want. Star Trek, I think for me, one of my favorite things about it has always been the inclusivity of the universe and the sort of utopian future that it, it hopes for. I would personally love it if toys started reflecting that in creative ways. So like right now, there's an Instagram post circulating of somebody who made these really cool Klingon dolls. And I kind of want to know like, okay, what does that look like if we start to make that into actual licensed stuff? Like give me sort of the, the tunic and maybe some other options and kind of a, a generic doll that I can customize. And, and let me continue to build my Star Trek avatar because at the end of the day, that's the universe that I want to participate in. Something that is inclusive and utopian and wonderful. And I think toys have the power to, to do that. So that's my hope. I'm really looking forward to merchandise from Picard from the standpoint of 
again, them understanding that as we are adults now, having grown up with, with the Next Generation series and this character, and so stuff like the wine that they've created that is coming directly from the show, I'm, I'm super excited about this kind of nostalgia, but in a more adult fashion, because I mean, not to knock you, Jonathan, but I don't really collect toys anymore, unfortunately. Uh, you know, so I am, I'm looking for stuff that I can kind of work into my everyday life. Like, that's why I really like the bags that the coop has made. And, and I, I love that the franchise has a- alcohol licensed in every incarnation. They have, they have spirits, they have wine and they have beer. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing where kind of the more adult side of this is going to go, especially in terms of the nostalgia factor from existing characters that we grew up with. Should we say like our favorite Star Trek merch yeah, thing? I guess we did that. that with with the Nutcrackers. No, that's not actually when I when people would come into the Star Trek archive and we would be like giving them a tour and showing them around, which was mostly licensees because the archive is actually a secret location. <laughs> but I would show them my favorite thing in the archive was a pool float shaped like the Enterprise D. Oh my gosh! I that's loved amazing. it. I loved it. And Marion would show these molds like popsicle molds from the i think the late 60s or early 70s and they were not well made at all and the faces were all (laughs) contorted and stuff in these little molds but yeah yeah the the pool float is probably my favorite piece of merchandise that has existed because it's just it's just so well made what's your favorite piece of merchandise that you at one point owned how about that i can tell you mine right now it was given to me by my high school librarian. It was a giant cardboard Enterprise D that I guess they got to like hang above the science fiction books in the library or something, but we couldn't for some reason in my school. So my school librarian was like, hey, I have something for you. And this thing had to be like four feet long. So I just like on the bus one day, get off the bus and go home. And I've got this giant cardboard Enterprise. And my parents are like, what? What did you do? And I had that thing for years. And I think it finally got like dry rot or something. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. It's sad. It doesn't exist anymore. I don't know if I have it. I mean, when I was a kid, most of the merchandise I had was like office supplies. So they're like folders that have, I mean, long been thrown away. I think my favorite per- piece of merchandise that I own right now is the warp core charger that goes in your car. mm I I have one. I gave my dad one. And they're just, again, it doesn't say Star Trek on it. It's something that is functional. It looks cool. It does something. But if somebody were to get in your car and not be a Star Trek fan, they wouldn't know the difference. But if they were to be like, oh, my God, that's the warp core from from the Enterprise D. So I really love things that that have kind of a function. So I think that's actually my favorite piece. I use that every day. That's my favorite piece of merchandise right now. So I have two answers. One we've already talked about, which is the marshmallow uh-huh. dispenser. That actually legit is my favorite <laughs> Star Trek thing because where did that come from? I don't know, but I love that it exists. And but the 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 other thing is sort of this first piece of Star Trek merch that I ever remember owning, and it was that Galoob diecast metal Enterprise D that they for some reason sold to children, <laughs> and the paint chipped like crazy. 
and the thing weighed a ton and you could legitimately kill someone with it. I still have it like by the bedside. I don't have a baseball bat. I have that Enterprise D. And if anyone breaks into my house, I'll chuck it at you and it'll kill you because it is that heavy. And I love it. I, I just, I, I remember spending hours as a kid trying to get the, the saucer section to fit right with the battle bridge and because it did the separation thing. I remember so much fun surrounding that toy. And so I think, you know, even though there are other sort of quirky answers, when I actually think back and, and remember those times playing with that, I, I'm, I'm the happiest. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for having this conversation with me. I know it is longer than a standard episode, but I think it, this was a ton of fun. Holly, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where can they do such a thing? I am super active on Twitter, especially about all things Star Trek and my adventures kind of working for the franchise. So you can find me on Twitter at HollyAmos22. And Jonathan? Uh, so Twitter uh, at JAlexan, J-A-L-E-X-A-N. Facebook, Jonathan Alexandrados. Twitter at Toy underscore Circus. So all of those are places to to find me. I'm also starting a podcast this month called My Plastic Life, available wherever you get That's your podcasts. That's a clever title. And Thank Toy you. Circus, you mean Instagram, right? Yeah, what'd I say? Twitter. Oh, whoops. Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And to learn more about our show or contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at womenatwarp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for joining us. 